Let's go. Oh, <laughs> that was fast. That was fast. I say it and Jake does it. <laughs> oh, man. Hey, everybody. I'm Amy Scott. We are ready. We promise. <laughs> Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where we make today make sense. And even if we're not, we'll get through it anyway. I'm Kai Rizdal. This is What Do You Want to Know Wednesday. You bring the questions. We will bring the answers. The best way to get those questions on this podcast is to leave us a voicemail at 508-UB-SMART or send us an email. We can just read it, you know, make me smart at marketplace.org. All right. Let's hear the first question of the day. All right. Hi, my name is Daniel, and I'm calling from Los Angeles, California. What happens when the USA defaults on its debt? Oh, will it cause a big recession for regular Americans, or will there not really be any changes? Thank you so much, oh. and look forward to hearing back. Mm. Okay, very bad things will happen. It will cause a big <laughs> recession, and there will be a lot of big changes. Thanks for coming to the podcast. No, look, so <laughs> here's here's the deal. Here's the deal. Uh, we are now in a give or take five and a half month political um, um, uh, goat rope over the debt limit. The debt limit, of course, is a statutory limit on how much the United States can borrow to pay the money that Congress has already spent. It is now $31.4 <laughs> trillion at the debt limit. We're at about 31.5 now. So Janet Yellen, Secretary of the Treasury, said last week, look, Thursday... Uh, we hit the limit and I got to move a bunch of money around. So we've got until June-ish until something really bad happens. But I want to be clear that really bad things can start happening the closer we get to that date. We are five and a half months out, whatever it is. I'm probably getting my time wrong. five months. But um, bad things will happen before we get there. Interest rates will go up. Investors will get nervous. And global financial markets will get skittish. And those are all three very bad things. So, look, let's just throw some, some facts out here. And I, I, I'm, I'm uh, citing Moody's Analytics here. Courtney got this number for us. Moody Analytics, Analytics says the United States would lose 6 million jobs, $12 trillion in household wealth, and 4% of gross domestic product which is overall economic growth, right? If we default on our debt, why would that happen? Because I've said before on this podcast, the United States debt market, the treasury market is the deepest, the biggest, the most liquid debt market in the world. Everybody on the planet, that's almost literally everybody, wants to own American debt. Why? They want to own American debt because they get paid back. They get paid back with interest, the full faith and credit of the United States. We have never, except once in a really technical, technical situation, defaulted on that debt. And it took like three hours that time, but whatever. We, we pay back what we owe. The Lannisters always pay their debts, right? If you're a Game of Thrones fan. We're the Lannisters, <laughs> except minus all the killing and all that stuff. Sorry, that was a, that was a sideways <laughs> reference. <hope>. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, look, very bad things happen. Interest rates go up for the government. That means your car loan payments will go up. Your mortgages will go up. People will lose their jobs. Extremely bad things happen. We can't pay our bills. We can't pay the military. We can't pay Social Security. We can't pay disabled benefits. We can't pay any of that stuff, which is why it's really, really a problem that Republicans in Congress are trying to use the full faith and credit of the United States to leverage policy decisions. That was a little bit of a rant. I apologize. Please go on. <laughs> well, I think it's really telling that Daniel said, or will there not really be any changes? Yeah. Um, because sometimes it's hard to know what to make of these things when there are these giant standoffs right. and the media are screaming and crying about right. it, you know? But this is one that would be super, super bad. 
Um, yes. We really don't want to get there, so, or even close to. Get or, there. or even close, and I and I think part of the the people actually having to ask whether there would be any changes at all is from uh, uh, Republicans saying uh, to the national media and the Washington press corps, look, if you had a credit card and you kept bumping up against the limit, your credit card company wouldn't simply raise the limit. You just wouldn't be able to borrow anymore and you'd have to figure out a different way to pay your bills. Mm. The American government is not the household, right? The American government does not run that way. And so that is a, a specious comparison and it's... Uh, it's actually a little bit of disinformation, if I could just go there for a minute. Yeah. So anyway, that's true. This uh, is not that. This is not. This is not that. Uh, housing. Next, go. Hi, y'all. This is Ooh. Becca in New York. Amy's answer on what do you want to know Wednesday about the lack of starter homes got me thinking um, about what are the economic impacts of exclusionary zoning. The place I live is full of neighborhoods that want to restrict the lot size hmm. or how much people can live on a lot or how high buildings can be or setbacks or all these things that are, you know, to some, coded racism. Hmm. So what's the money have hmm. to say? Hmm. Thanks. It's a really good question. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so for people who aren't familiar with the term, exclusionary zoning is also known as single-family zoning. And it basically is rules that make it really hard to build anything but a detached single-family house in a neighborhood. It's really common. Um, and yes, it has racist origins uh, going back to when um, many neighborhoods were explicitly discriminating mm-hmm. against African-Americans. Uh, a workaround was to prevent the building of multifamily housing because it kept low-income people out um, and, you know, they were disproportionately black and brown people. Uh, and I, I want to point out that another reason this exists is because people, you know, living in these neighborhoods like to keep their property values high and uh, not allowing multiple, you know, families to live on a single lot means scarcity, which pushes up home prices. So I think that's one way this affects the economy. Um, it contributes to the the racial wealth gap by making it harder uh, for uh, people to get a foothold in the market and, and build equity through home ownership. Um, it makes housing just kind of across the board expensive. Um, we have a reference here uh, to a study by the Century Foundation. We can on the website that found that one in four black Americans and one in six Hispanic Americans living in poverty reside in high poverty neighborhoods, but only one in 13 poor white Americans live Mm. in a high poverty neighborhood. Mm. And concentrated poverty makes it harder to escape poverty. Um, And this is all because it's difficult for, you know, families to live in, in neighborhoods with more opportunity if they can't necessarily afford a single family house. Um, so I think it's really interesting, but I also uh, have some good news, which is that some communities are pushing back on this. And you've seen states like Oregon and California, cities like Minneapolis, outlawing or banning single-family only zoning in um, all or parts of their communities. And I think, you know, we just need more housing. I, I feel like a broken record about this, but anything that makes it easier to build housing is going to make it more affordable for all of us. Yeah. 
Yeah. And and look, the, the reason housing matters, other than it's a house and you have a place to live, is that that's the <laughs> way, by and large, most people build wealth in this economy, right? And if you are shut out of the housing market, you are almost by definition shut out from building that intergenerational wealth that helps people actually move up the very difficult to move up socioeconomic ladder. That's that's the other side of this. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Anyway. All right. So after our show on the World Trade Organization yeah. last week and the state of global trade, John from Maryland wrote in with this question about tariffs. He says, how do tariffs work? Can the president simply declare a tariff? Does Congress need to approve or authorize it? Who collects the money? Where did the money go? <laughs> you, you know, a good question. Great, we, we're getting all these multi-part questions. That was four questions in one question, which I kind of love. It's like, And it's, I know you know all it, of it's, this. It's so. like Biden at a press <laughs> conference. Okay. So... <laughs> Tariffs are uh, import duties, that is to say, taxes placed on imports that a country will impose for any one of a number of reasons. It could be national security, which we'll get to in a minute. It could be to protect a domestic industry like sugar is a huge one, or I'm making this up, concrete or or tiddlywinks, whatever, right? Um, <laughs> so they are measures put into place. When was the last time you heard somebody play, say tiddlywinks, right? <laughs> Do they still I just, make them? I don't know. I, I just dated myself horribly. <laughs> anyway, anyway. So that's so tariffs work by uh, those fees, those import taxes being placed on imports by a government. That's, that's the nuts and bolts. Now, the catch, of course, is that importers... The companies who actually are shipping those things from overseas. So let's say you're importing leather goods from China. Making this up, this is hypothetical. You're importing leather goods from China. We've got a 25% tariff on leather goods from China. You, the importer, the company, have to pay that 25%, right? And that actually goes to, to the federal treasury. But... You don't want to pay that 25% because that cuts into your profit margin. So what do you do? Well, like any good business person, you pass as much of that cost onto your consumers as the consumers will bear. So eventually, tariffs are paid for by consumers in the importing country, which is why it was so infuriating. And I know you heard me say this on Marketplace a zillion times when Donald Trump was president. It isn't that the Chinese were paying Donald Trump's tariffs. It was American <laughs> consumers. So that's yep. the setup. Can the president simply declare a tariff? Well, kind of. Originally, the tariff responsibility and authority rests in government and the Constitution with the Congress of the United States. But what has happened, as in so many things, to repeat myself on a little bit of a rant, God, I'm really ranty today, um, Congress has decided it doesn't want to make the hard decisions about specifically tariffs. And so it has let, by statute, the president make most of those decisions, right? So in some cases, Congress retains the right or has tried to claw back the right, but almost always now, tariffs are an executive branch function. Who collects the money? I think I said that to Treasury Department of the United States. Where does the government money go? It goes through the Treasury Department of the United States. But but look, so so here's here's the way it works. And and I'll just give you the simple example from the Trump the Trump steel and aluminum tariffs. So in in March of 2018, President Trump announced uh, what are called Section 232 tariffs on steel and aluminum from a wide variety of countries. Some of them are allies, some of them not our allies. He was using authority granted to him by Section 232 of the Trade Expansion Act of 1962, right? So it's a 50 freaking year old law, right, when things were very different. And Trump said, to be clear, not without reason, that our steel and aluminum industries are being hurt buy steel and aluminum imports from other countries that are lower priced, and that is a national security threat. Now, if you can help me understand how steel from Canada is a national security threat, 
I guess that's a whole different podcast. But Trump had that authority and he did it. And he did it. And he also did a bunch of other stuff on on China and, and luxury goods to Europe and all this stuff. The president basically has the authority unless Congress can claw it back. Um, tariffs are really interesting. They're really complicated. They are really significant. They are geopolitical tools. Um, and also, sometimes they get a little bit boring, too. Like that whole rant <laughs> I just did. You know, there's that. There's that. Consider it smoot holly. And oh, Dealer. man, there you go. Oh, man, there you go. Oh, my lordy be. So... Uh, here we go. We got one more, uh, and then we'll get our air here. It's from uh, Django from Bellingham, Washington, and it's a question about inflation. I'm curious how inflation affects different income levels. Does 4% inflation mean a low-income family sees the same increase in their personal economy as a high-income family might see? You get that. Yeah, one. this is a really interesting question, and uh, the simple answer is no. Inflation does affect families at different income levels differently. Uh, Nancy Marshall Genzer actually covered this on Marketplace recently. The New York Fed had a, a study out showing um, how uh, inflation varies according to income and even race. Um, the, it's called inflation inequality. And the Fed found out found that over the past couple of years, black, Hispanic and middle income households were most affected by rising inflation. Um, and that was largely because the greater share of their expenditures are devoted to transportation, particularly used cars and gas, which were categories that, you know, led the inflation we were seeing for a while. However, when the price of gas went uh, down, um, food and housing costs went up. And so as a result, now it's lower income families who are experiencing higher inflation than the national average. So it really depends, you know, kind of what your household's budget is going to, because as we've seen, some prices rise differently than others. Um, one other thing we should point out, which Nancy also talked about in her story, is that the fix for inflation, rising interest rates, can also disproportionately affect low-income people, people of color. They're more likely to work service jobs. And when consumers cut back on shopping and eating out, um, those jobs get hit first. Um, also, you know, borrowing gets more expensive. So credit cards, the things we fall back on in hard times, uh, get more expensive, too. The, the truism about inflation, and this is actually true for almost every uh, bad thing that happens in this economy, is that the lower end of the income spectrum feels it and bears it disproportionately compared to the upper levels. It's, it's just that's that's the way it works. Right. Um, it's terrible, yeah. but that's the way it works. And it's important that we keep saying that so that everybody understands that. Anyway, there you go. All right. One more question yes. before we end the show. This is a personal one, Kai. Yeah. Diane wants to know. Uh, wondering how Kai is liking his new EV. Does he miss the minivan or is he a convert? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I don't miss the minivan at all. And look, I was a minivan guy for a very long time, but we just don't need it anymore. And it makes no sense for me to be barreling around in that, you know, huge thing. So if anybody's in the market for it, no, I'm just kidding. I will not sell my car on this. I will not sell my car <laughs> on this Don't they make electric minivans? Uh, I think they're moving toward them. I haven't seen a, an EV one, but I have seen hybrids. Um, yeah, it was time for me to move on. Uh, also, it's the right thing for the planet. I got an Ionic 5, really like it. 
Um, it's it's actually interesting. Today, I've had it for a month and a half. Today's the first day I had to do a little bit of range anxiety calculation because I have a bunch of driving Uh-oh. I have to do after. Yeah, I have a bunch of driving I have to do this afternoon. And I'm like, all right, let's see. I'm going to go 45 miles. I got 62 miles on the battery. Okay, I'll be home in just a minute of time. <laughs> Truly, that's that's the way it went. But, you know, it'll be fine because then I'll plug it in tonight and I'll wake up tomorrow and I'll have a full battery and bada bing, bada bang. It's great. It's great. Super fun. Super fun. Yeah. I always loved that you were so proud of the minivan, though. Oh, I, I loved being a minivan dad. It was so useful for me and my family. And and the reason we're getting rid of it now, other than, you know, gas prices and it being the right thing to do, is because we literally just don't need it anymore. There's just three of us in the house now, you know? Sniff. Oh, I know. It's a little sad. It's a little sad. It's, yeah. It's a little sad. All right, we're going to go out on a little sad, but kind of a happy note. Uh, what do you want to know Wednesday is in the can. If you've got a question for us about business or the economy or the culture that we live in, Send them to us. You know how to do it. 508-827-6278. 508-UB-SMART. Or make me smart at marketplace.org. And we'll see about getting you on the pod. Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfes writes our newsletter. Our intern is Antonio Barreras. Today's program was engineered by Jake Cherry. Ben Talladay and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music, tambourines and all. Our acting senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Richard Bonner is the director of podcast. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital and on demand around here.